reason Lil Gums bleeding Friday evening, it was all about eating When I became a teen, it was all about beefing Now I'm ready for the world Trying to sink my teeth in Stacking extra hey cheese like my welcome piece to the on the weekend It's how to beginning of our second year. I'm your host, Christy Harrison. And for those of you who've been listening to Food Psych, I missed you over the summer. We had a long summer hiatus and we're just coming back. Um, So I definitely had some time to do some thinking over the summer about the direction of the podcast. And I have a couple announcements. First of all, I love the podcast. I would gladly do it full-time or almost full-time if I could, if it paid. It turns out podcasting doesn't pay, though. Who knew? I knew. Uh, I just chose to ignore that fact for the first year, but I can't ignore it anymore. So starting this season, I'm going to be doing Food Psych as an occasional series, uh, probably about once a month, but not even really on any set structure. Just uh, as I get new episodes and have time to post them, I'll do that. The other thing, uh, a little formatting change that's happening with the podcast is that I'm not going to be editing as much and I'm just going to kind of throw things up as is a little more. So you might be used to like kind of tighter focus on food. Um, But this season, there's going to be a little more like far ranging conversations and, you know, things that ramble around before getting back to the food. Not that I never did that before, but this season, there's probably going to be more of it because I did uh, edit out things that were off topic. So I'll be presenting it with less editing this season. The third formatting change this season, which doesn't really apply to the episode you're about to hear, is that uh, this season's going to be a little more tightly focused on eating disorders and recovery. Um, so it'll be hopefully a good resource for any of you who are struggling out there or who um, know somebody who's struggling. However, I'll be uh, sprinkling in some, you know, more fun, lighter episodes with people who don't have a complicated relationship to food, and that is one that you're about to hear. Uh, Jane Lerner is my guest. She's a journalist and the host of BK Swappers, which is a very Brooklyn, uh, super fun food event where people come together with uh, homemade foods that they've made and, and trade them, swap them, so you know, vinegars and pickles and jams and jellies and like infused vodkas and what have you. Uh, And it's a really interesting social dynamic that happens there. So Jane and I talk about that a little bit uh, later in the episode. But we also uh, spend a lot of time talking about her really healthy relationship to food and how she got that. Um, Because I know that many of you and I myself have not had an easy road with that. And um, it's a rare thing, I think, to find a woman, especially who never really struggled with food or body image. So without further ado, let's go uh, hear that conversation. I recorded this last spring before the hiatus, so you'll hear some references to Passover. It's kind of dating us a little bit, but but we're eating egg noodles with cottage cheese, and Jane is explaining the origins of that sort of strange pairing. Yeah, Cabot, I, I don't usually see this. Oh, is it really Cabot? Much, it's not Cabot? I, well, maybe it's Cabot, actually. I don't know. Oh, I'm my God. You just the, blew my mind if I'm that's how you really pronounce it. French pronunciation. <laughs> that bro- is the French way. Oh, that is too. Like Colbert. Col- Colbert, yeah. My brother in law calls, you know, bullet bourbon, and uh-huh. he calls it boulet. I'm like, I don't think oh, that's how you pronounce no. it. Yeah. That's a funny one. <laughs> it's like trying to be fancy. He's like, well, there's an I in there. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> that's not, it doesn't seem like a French yes, spelling. No, I so. think it's like from Kentucky. Yeah, you know, yeah. Totally. <laughs> like, they just put an eye in there to be. I know it was pretty funny. Actually, actually. Yeah, that's hilarious. I'm gonna make fun of him on that one for a long time. Yeah, seriously, boule. <laughs> 
Um, so we are going to eat um, egg noodles with this Cabo cottage cheese, which I had never heard of or thought about combining noodles and cottage cheese, but it makes total sense. It, yeah, I mean, it's connected, I think, to sort of an old Italian ricotta and right. you know, pasta kind of a thing. There's yeah. you know, cream and cream and pasta is an age-old thing. Totally. But it's, uh, it's, I think it's mostly like a Jewish immigrant thing. Uh-huh. I imagine that there's probably some far more, you know, official, traditional mm. version of it with some sort of like farmer's cheese or, right. you know, handmade cheese cheese from like back in the shtetl kind of a mm-hmm. thing but this was the version that my mom used to make and that her mom made and that oh, my wow. sister makes for her kids wow. which is absolutely lovely that's really and nice. it's super comfort foodie and today I even looked it up online to uh-huh. see like if there were a few recipes and there's not much you mm. know but there's definitely there was some form like jewishfoodtraditions.com or something oh, interesting. and some woman was like does anyone have a recipe and everybody was basically like cook the egg noodles throw some butter throw some cottage cheese uh-huh. salt and pepper like you know there's yeah. not much of a, of a real <laughs> recipe happening here and that's actually that's yeah. exactly what i did so exactly um, your instincts were true like i don't know how much cottage cheese to put yeah. so i would say that's that's a little the one that i'm more. looking at here is a little uh-huh. heavy on the cottage okay, cheese more yeah. than i you know than my mom would have used but i probably right. would pour more butter and cottage cheese on the indulgent um, level gotcha you know, yeah i did i think probably less of the butter and more of the cottage cheese yeah but let's try and see what you think. Okay, I'm so excited. Did yeah, you just make so it? I did, yes. I mean, so absolutely 20 adorable. minutes ago or something. So wow, see, your noodles are far fancier. My mom would use the, like, I don't know, is it Manischewitz brand? Or, like, uh-huh. you know, so it's, I know there was, like, a Mrs. Grass's egg noodle. It has uh-huh. to be egg noodles. I probably yes. should have, like, you know. No, I think you mentioned yes. that, and I found them, which I, I realized when I tasted one that I hadn't had egg noodles in so many years, yep. and it took me back. Yep. It was like, oh, my mom always made egg noodle noodles, yep. too. My mom always used the ones that were, like, a little bit smaller than these because these mm-hmm. are sort of larger almost like paparadelli yeah, kind actually of version. Yeah. But um, hers were like, you know, just the dried kind from the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because I'll buy a bag sometimes just sort of in homage to my mom, even uh-huh. if I'm not doing this dish, but there's something about it in like a beef stew or, oh, yes. you know, I don't know. And my mom would also make a, a mushroom stroganoff always over oh, the same God. egg noodles. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I that's just another had, 70s dish. Yeah, definitely. Stroganoff was so big. Oh, God. I just had stroganoff <laughs> with another guest um, for Passover. Over, oh, or, really? Well, not Passover. Passover wasn't a stroganoff. I mean, stroganoff wasn't a Passover yeah, you don't dish do for her, for obviously. Passover, yeah. but especially because it's usually cream or something with yeah. the beef. But um, she that was her kind of entree into cooking, was cooking the boxed hamburger helper nice. stroganoff. That's adorable. So, and then we also talked about Passover. So. Oh, it's, I had gefilte fish for breakfast, so there you oh, go. Oh, very good. <laughs> Are you, so you're obviously not doing the Passover uh, No, I, I am. Yeah. I mean, I am Jewish culturally, mm-hmm. you know, far more than I am religiously. Right. Um, I wasn't raised really with any particular observancy by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, definitely an understanding of a, of a real cultural Judaism and a connection to that history. Right. And always a strong acknowledgement. All four of my grandparents were first... Uh, were were mm. Eastern European immigrants, and both of my parents were first generation Americans. Mm-hmm. So you know that kind of consciousness of where we came from was always very strong. Yeah, but there was at least at my parents' generation a pretty certain rejection of the religious part. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Mmm. Oh, good. Mmm. Is that oh, about what you remember? Yep. There's something about the starchiness mm-hmm. of the noodle. There's like a certain flavor of the egg noodle. Totally. And the creaminess. Yeah, no, it totally, and the black the black pepper really captures yeah. my memory of it as well. Very much so. This one, I actually used green pepper because uh, I didn't have any black pepper. <laughs> Weirdly, only have green pepper. Well, that right peppercorn now. thing is but still coming through. But peppercorns, exactly, yeah. yeah. 
Um, yeah, there's something about like egg noodles and butter, that flavor mm. that really takes me back so to it's good. Like, exactly what my mom made growing yeah. up. Yeah, and my mom would always do it where, um, <clears throat> excuse me, where the, um, the cottage cheese would sort of, you know, with the hot noodles would get mm. kind of like melty. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, in the last couple of years or several years when I've made this, you know, really as like a comfort food kind mm-hmm. of a thing for myself. The ones that are the most successful is when the cheese kind of almost gets like a little bit stringy oh, and yeah. melty from the heat of the noodles. And if you mm-hmm. eat it like right away, yeah, that's a particularly like oh, delicious lovely. incarnation of it. Yeah, no, this is fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of a nice dish in that it can be hot or cold. I mean, it mm-hmm. cooled down pretty quickly, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I it was totally like, devour this. Yeah. That's awesome. It's <laughs> so sweet. I like, there's something so like lovely that you that you made this yeah. and that you did this. You know, just from my telling you that it's what my mom used to make. Yes. And no, it's, I, it's, it's funny how cottage cheese was such a '70s thing as well. Right. Totally. I mean, I, this is not necessarily a '70s dish, but that's sort of the era to which Where I associate it. Came you know? on the scene. Yeah. Exactly. At least definitely. in my own family. And you know, if you, I was just laughing the other day with a friend about how at diners, mm-hmm. it always was like the diet plate right. with the scoop of cottage right. cheese. <laughs> And, and like, some like fruit around yes, the edges. Yeah, some like really crappy oh, cantaloupe, you right. know, like completely tasteless. Oh my God, totally. Maybe like a scoop of tuna salad, or sometimes Ew, it would just be like yeah. a hamburger patty. Uh-huh. It's kind of an at weird Atkins kind yeah. of Weight Watchers y thing, you know? Oh, just, just too hilarious. Random mixture of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> High protein plate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Was um, cottage cheese a diet food in your household? Because you said your dad was on Weight Watchers, Yeah, right? my dad was always kind of overweight mm-hmm. and struggling with his weight. Mm-hmm. And him and my grandmother were always on Weight Watchers. Mm. And yeah, there was some cottage cheese. There was like, you know, that really thinly sliced toast that oh, I remember right. really well. Mm-hmm. It was like half of a piece of mm-hmm. bread sliced very thin. Right. And I also remember this one funny thing where my dad made... Um, broiled grapefruit like Mm -hmm. half of a grapefruit you know cut and then sprinkled with sugar and put under the broiler Mm -hmm. and I just thought that was the weirdest most disgusting thing I'd ever seen in my life (laughs) I was like why are you making that like I just had no concept of why that was appealing in any way shape or form yeah and I do I do remember making my mom would make meals because we had dinner together almost every night Mm -hmm. where um you know my dad would eat something else Oh, wow. You know, and that always seemed a little sad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that he was sort of sitting at the table with like this very plain piece of chicken while we were eating whatever oh. we were eating. Yeah, that's really interesting. And did that, do you think that affected your relationship to food? No, because I, I mean, I observed that and I observed mm-hmm. my grandmother and my aunt and my dad struggle with their weight, but. There was never any of that pressure from mm-hmm. my mom directly, which me and my sister do very deeply appreciate and have acknowledged yeah. as adults that, you know, my mom never gave this, if if you don't eat all your vegetables, you can't have dessert, or you better not eat any more of that, are you sure you've had enough, you know, just, right. there was none of that kind of weirdness around food, there was, it just mm-hmm. wasn't much of an issue, I mean, there were things I would reject, my mom would sort of force me to choke down a few bites of whatever it was, mm. but, um... I mean, I guess I was just lucky enough to be an active enough kid, or at least just a skinny enough kid where, Mm -hmm. you know, that wasn't necessarily too much of a concern. 
but yeah, somehow my sister and I that that food it, that food intensity was absent with the kids, even if right. it was present with my dad. Which, you know, I feel lucky. Well, I wonder too if there's something about uh, having a female role model who was not doing that, you know, and mm-hmm. who was pre- presenting sort of a more balanced way of approaching it. Yeah, Whereas, absolutely. You know, if if it had been the roles had been reversed, maybe it would have been harder to. Yeah, I mean, I think my mom was always a very skinny girl mm-hmm. and woman, and. You know, food was an food. I think was for her when she was a child. I think it was just eat the food. Like yeah. we have food, eat it. Right. You know, like it's 1939 right. and there's not much of it. So please, yeah. you know. Um, so I think that it it was more of a of a the issue was more of a wastefulness, mm-hmm. not so much of a you're eating too much because you're getting fat. You know, right. kind of it's, a thing. Don't leave it on your plate. Yeah, don't, don't yeah. leave anything behind. Yeah. yeah, and my dad always used to joke about the clean plate club, and yeah. you know that was always like an important thing to like show mm-hmm. that you appreciated and ate the food. Right. Um, you know, not so much a pressure of or a worry of eating too much. Right. You know, it seemed relatively balanced. Although sometimes I wonder if I'm just sort of putting a bit of a rosy sheen on it mm. in you know in hindsight kind right. of a thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's. There's obviously so much going on, especially because in my father's side of the family, there was so many food issues, mm-hmm. and I think that he was teased as a child for being overweight, and that you know his parents gave him a hard time, mm. and so he struggled with that as an adult. But it was definitely not really passed down to us. Mm-hmm. Do you think he consciously thought about that, like? Likely, likely. He didn't want to impose that on you. Yeah, I think my parents both were very much of a generation where whatever that they experienced in a negative way in their own childhoods, mm-hmm. I think that they really made a concerted effort to not pass that down to the next generation, to me yeah. and my sister. You know, I think that their generation in many ways was sort of the first generation that really had this kind of consciousness about parenting. Mm, right. You know, in a way that's, and I think in our generation now, kind of, of exploded accepted. in an insane way, Definitely, you know. Yeah. Um, every child is, you know, massively micromanaged by their parents, you know, in a way that I don't feel that I was. But right. I do think that my parents, you know, my mom was was felt, I think, very controlled by her parents and mm-hmm. her attitude toward me and my sister was very laissez faire. Right. You know, it was very much like I want to give you the empowerment to make the decisions that you want to make. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean nice. both of my parents have passed away. So, you oh, know, okay. it's also you know, obviously a sort of more loaded uh, memory. And, you know, as I said, sometimes I maybe sugarcoat Mm. it because, you know, it's the memory that I choose to (laughs) choose to live with because that's kind of all I've got of them. You know, when did they pass away? My dad died when I was 13. Oh, I know it was terrible. He was way too young. He was only 49. Wow. He had skin cancer and it developed into a brain tumor. It was terrible. I'm so sorry. Thank you. And then my mom passed away almost exactly 20 years later. Wow. Um, So that was almost 10 years ago. So, you know, it's been a long time. Yeah. You know, without both my parents. That's hard. Yeah, it is. You know, sometimes I'm like, God. How did, how did that happen yeah. <laughs> in my world, you know? Totally. And it's interesting, too, how food has become such a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really a huge part of my mom's life. In fact, I think she kind of rolled her eyes at the whole kind of, like, mm. foodie scene in her later years. I think she thought it was a little ridiculous. Interesting. You know, and I, I can imagine very much, though, that my dad would have been really into my passion for food and really mm-hmm. connected, you know, to the, to the ways in which I've become really enthusiastic about it. Where do you think that came from, your passion for food? Um, I, you know, I wish I knew. I, mm-hmm. I feel like even from being a really young kid, I was always really interested in it. And it was sort of a creative expression for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my mom would 
let me cook and make stuff for myself. And I remember cooking mm. my own food from as early as maybe like third grade. Wow. Um, it's like eight years old or yeah, something. Nine, yeah, nine. Yeah, eight, nine. Wow. Um, I used to make, my mom always said I made really good French toast. I was really into breakfast mm. foods. That's, I think that's easy for kids, Definitely, an easy way to start. Yeah. Grilled cheese and, you know. I didn't really make like dinners until I was in high school, Mm -hmm. but I definitely would make sandwiches and I'd fix myself soup. And I mean, my sister and I used to laugh about my mom's making up, my mom would make us lunches, Uh but my mom was not a morning person at all. So the idea of her like getting up in the morning before school and making us a lunch was like out of the question. (laughs) Like absolutely not happening. Uh And what she would do, I mean, we just, we crack up about this. Um, She would make like two weeks worth of sandwiches and wrap them in tinfoil and freeze them. Oh my God. And then my sister and I would grab one Uh in the morning and put it in your lunchbox. And by the time lunch rolled around, it it had defrosted. (laughs) That's so funny. You know, that didn't really seem weird to us at the time. But in retrospect, I'm like, that is crazy. Yeah. (laughs) I can't believe she did that. And it was all these like Jewish deli meats. Uh there would be um, there would be tongue sandwiches, wow, and corned beef sandwiches, mm-hmm. usually on rye bread with a little bit of mustard, really plain, you know, yeah. not some fancy schmancy built up sandwich, right. right, with like arugula and fresh tomatoes <laughs> and aioli at all, right? Um, and yeah, that's that would tongue sandwiches, and she would label each of them with like a sharpie, and uh-huh. it would be like CB for corned beef, for tea, for tongue, oh and my I can God. picture perfectly. Like her angle of her tea, oh, you know, in the Sharpie, wow. written on the tin foil in the stack of sandwiches in the freezer. Wow. It's like a very vivid memory. That's so interesting because it's it's so <clears throat> sort of there is a real attention to detail in that, even though it is <laughs> at some level kind of like strange. And, <laughs> you know, really and, and, you know, she didn't want to have to get up early and make it fresh, but it's like... There's something very sort of nice about yeah. just thinking. I mean, she made the you know, effort. It just that, wasn't exactly like a daily effort. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, my mom ate a lot of funny things that mm-hmm. I don't think she necessarily realized were funny. Mm, you like know, what? well, she was really, she always put um, half and half in her cereal. Oh, wow. Which I think is kind of insane. That's a lot. And I didn't yeah. really realize how crazy that was until much later in life, you know, mm-hmm. when I sort of got into the world and, you know, became intimate enough with my friends and, yeah. you know, other people in the world to, like, have cereal with them at some point, you know, in college or whatever. Yeah. And realizing that that was crazy, that nobody yeah. puts cream in their cereal like that. Right. But that's just what my mom did, what her dad did. Mm-hmm. And she her midnight snack was always um, saltines with cream cheese. Wow. Or Triscuits with, um, do you remember the, like, the squares of, it still exists, of Cracker Barrel cheese? Oh, yeah. Like the sort of square logs. Right, totally. And, she would, and they fit on a Triscuit absolutely <laughs> perfectly. So oh she'd put God. a few little cheddar cheese Triscuit snacks. So, you know, just a couple of these hilarious things. Yeah. Like the frozen sandwiches that it wasn't until after I left the house. Right. When I really got a bit of distance to realize, like, oh, that's kind of whack it's job. It's <laughs> Totally. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you like the sandwiches? Like, did they? Because I can imagine, you know, they might get freezer burned or yeah. sort of taste weird, or the bread is a little soggy. Like, did that quality difference? I mean, register? I think sometimes if they didn't get unfrozen enough and they didn't mm-hmm. thaw enough, it was kind of gross, right? But I don't remember having issues. I mean, I remember seeing movies or you know you hear jokes about kids like trading food or whatever mm-hmm. in the lunchroom, but. 
I think I just ate what my mom gave me. I wow. wasn't really much of a complainer. Yeah. There was a year or two, though, when I insisted on doing hot lunch. Mm-hmm. And I went to a small, somewhat, um, quite small private school. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't have, like, a massive, you know, cafeteria by any means. But the right. hot lunch, I remember for several years, was... It was through Sbarro, Sbarro uh-huh. or however you pronounce that. The pizza yeah. company or whatever. And, and they, I guess, did like institutional catering. So they oh, were in wow. charge of the, you know, of the school lunch for a couple of years. And for some reason, I was like way into that in a trashy, mm-hmm. you know, fifth grade kind of a, like excited yeah. for pizza and tater tots kind of a way. Oh, yes. Yes. And that was sort of thrilling. And I can still picture the card, you know, it was like a little punch card with a calendar on it. Ooh. And they would punch it with a hole punch, you know, if you got your... So you, you got bring it with you, day. and then yeah, they would, you had to show your punch card. Your lunch yeah. card. Yeah. And I remember also they had like a sandwich bar, which was sort of just, uh-huh. a, you know, some stale bread and some bologna and cheese and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and the little, chocolate, the little chocolate milks. Wow. Oh, yeah. I remember those, those little chocolate milks. Yep. Totally. Uh, institutional lunch is so, it's changed so much. I mean, some places it probably still is like that, but. It is. You know, my sister lives in uh, Telluride, Colorado, which mm-hmm. is a which is a beautiful community, and her kids do lunch sometimes at school. Mm-hmm. And I've sat in on their lunch sometimes. And, you know, it can be sort of, it's far fancier in terms of like yeah. salad and, you know, international dishes that we never had when we were kids in, in lunch. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's still kind of the same crappy food and then all the parents are outraged when their kids are served chocolate milk oh wow in fact that's a thing I've heard a number of parents complain about yeah you know that in school really you're handing my kid like a whole bunch of sugar in the middle of the day yeah you know but it's funny because when we were kids I mean whatever there was never that huge issue about that at all yeah exactly the idea of a parent complaining about a kid having chocolate milk in like 1982 is sort of unheard of yeah completely yeah no, it's it's so interesting how things have changed, and I'm curious to yeah. see how it affects the next generation. Whether, you know, we will see a reversal in childhood obesity with these measures, or whether mm-hmm. it's you know something else is going on. I don't know. Yeah, like, my nieces who are twin girls, they're nine years old, mm-hmm. and they fiend for candy. Mm. But then there's other things that they couldn't care less about. Sodas don't even like them. No, they don't like bubbly things. They think they're weird oh, tasting. They're just not interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like fancy dessert they're not that interested in wow but give them you know skittles jelly oh, beans yeah. they go bonkers i mean they're that it's like really insane. In- intense sugar bomb kind of thing oh not the complexity God. of of a fine dessert no. or even no. of a, co- a cola or something no no yes the fine, <laughs> the texture, fine texture of a coca-cola, of a coca-cola yes. <laughs> the developed flavors yes <laughs> it is it does have like a myriad of different flavors i think you, you know, know recently i had a really interesting food experience where mm-hmm. a friend of mine gave me this beautiful spice mix which i think is primarily mm. like cumin and fennel seeds and all this sort of really interesting stuff and the yeah. salt and then i had this incredible maple syrup from mm-hmm. i think up in upstate new york or new hampshire or something and for some strange reason I had a combination of the maple syrup and this spice mix. Mm-hmm. And when I tried that together, oh. it tasted like cola. <gasps> Interesting. And I had this crazy revelation uh-huh. of like, there's got to be star anise and fennel and yeah. cumin in the original Coca-Cola recipe because I swear yeah. to God, it just it just tasted so I cola-ish. It was fascinating. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what is in there. <laughs> proprietary secret of course we'll never yes, know exactly. although i am the kind of person who like eats salt so uh-huh. you know, like eats plain sugar so and plain butter you said oh yes, yes. i'm quite into butter i do love butter uh-huh. um and i love salt i'm like kind in fact i briefly mm. had a blog which i don't really update ever anymore called mm-hmm. butter and salt oh wow which i realize that butter and salt is pretty much good on 
everything. Everything. Yeah. everything. I mean, oh, I kind absolutely. of can't think of anything that you can't Wouldn't put butter and or salt well. on. Yeah. Even sweet things. I mean, oh, now like sure. chocolate chip cookies, everybody puts salt on yeah. chocolate chip cookies or brownies. Or every time I do something with chocolate, I use quite a lot of sea salt. Yeah. I think so. it makes it so much better. It really Absolutely. elevates it. Now I taste things that don't have enough salt, and it's really like, mm, that's something's yeah. missing there. Totally, totally. Sometimes I, I think my hand with the salt is a little too heavy. Uh-huh. You, know, I'm you like have a, jumping a salty it palate. In. Yeah. yeah, totally. Do you think it's adjusted your palate to be more, to crave more salt? Or I don't know. I actually feel like my palate is sort of getting worse lately. Uh-huh. I don't know if it's just like sinuses or allergies, oh, yeah. but lately I've found that my ability to really discern sense mm-hmm. and the nuance of smell has really decreased. It's I kind of distressing. That actually does happen to me around allergy season. And, yeah. it, and it kind of creeps up on me. So I never realize like, yeah. oh, I have allergies right now. But like lately I've been having these like dark, dark circles around my mm. eyes and just like kind of pain. Oh, you, you look know, great. Head, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just like, yeah, no, like face pain and kind of weird. Ouch. Every year my allergies sort of manifest differently. So I never really realize. And I'm like, oh, right. It's spring. It's that's what's happening. Well, so. and it's inter- interesting, too, how different foods are so appropriate at different times of year. Yeah. You know, and I think because my sinuses have been kind of intense mm-hmm. lately that I've been um, putting more like acid and salt oh, yeah. into things. You know, yesterday I made a Passover Seder mm-hmm. and I was kind of convinced that like the food that I made actually didn't really taste that great. Mm. And everybody said, oh no, it's good. I mean, I overcooked the lamb, but what can uh, you do? Yeah, can um, but <laughs> it's hard with that many dishes. I, I There's know. so many dishes. It was, it was a low-key Passover, uh-huh. I will say, but I did put it all together starting at like 5 p.m. yesterday. Okay. So I was proud of myself for pulling it off yeah. no matter what. That's amazing. But yeah, I mean, I definitely felt like I just wasn't getting the flavor. I kept adding more lemon juice and mm. adding more vinegar and sort of trying to bump up the flavor mm-hmm. you know but also our our palates I think is like professional eaters not right. that I'm much of a professional eater at this point but mm. you know the expectation in restaurants that is that there is this like wallop yeah. of flavor totally that I don't think was really part of the expectation of eating out in a restaurant until the last several years oh that's interesting you know what I mean yeah I mean like at Momofuku or Mission Chinese or some right. of those places you know, it's really layered, like crazy kind of combinations of flavors. Yeah. 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 I mean, I had this joke about Mission Chinese when I went there. I mean, not that it's even open right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> poor guys. But I, um, I remember saying this sort of nasty thing. I was like, it's, you know, it's so like umami. It's uh-huh. so like knock you over the head with flavor. Yeah. And if pardon my language, I said, it's kind of like being fucked in the ass by umami. <laughs> it's like yes. so gnarly. They're totally. just like walloping you with it. Yeah. You know, there's no subtlety and it's delicious and it's kind of thrilling. Right. But you're also just like, oh my God, Ooh, man, like calm this? it down. Like where's <laughs> yeah. the subtlety, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's so funny. Well, that's a good segue into, um, you know, your rest, your, or your culinary background and food writing background. Cause you know, did you start out writing about restaurants or what was that? I mean, I, I feel like I've always written about a variety of subjects and there yeah. were a few years when I was very deep in the food world and was doing mm-hmm. a lot of like restaurant coverage in New York, but that's not really something I do anymore. Yeah. Um, mostly just because I felt like I, as much as I love the restaurant scene and love being a part of it and love mm-hmm. eating out, it sort of ultimately wasn't my scene, Yeah, you know? And it, I feel that the restaurant writing world in New York especially, you know, you got to sort of know the right people to really mm-hmm. get all of those, to get the access, to get the news. Right. And there were so many other people doing that kind of work who were getting the scoop of, mm-hmm. you know, where that chef was going to what restaurant or, you know, what place was opening or whatever. And I just sort yeah. of wasn't in that loop. And I sort of got to a point where I was like, eh, I don't really 
care that much. <laughs> you yeah. know, I just sort of want to go out and eat and enjoy that and not feel the need to have to be on top of every single detail at I know all times. Exactly what you mean. <clears throat> it's there's such a churn. It's like so hard to stay on top of everything and you know, yeah. new restaurants opening all the time and yeah. places closing or getting shuttered by the DOH or you know Exactly. And I still follow some of the restaurant blogs and stuff, but mm-hmm. you know, I was never much of a food blogger, so I wasn't really in that scene. Yeah. I sort of would occasionally write something. And the restaurant scene is, you know, yeah, it's so fast paced. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of got to a point, at least at the level that I was at, where, you know, I just didn't really want to write one more roundup of like five new tapas restaurants or, you know, places to go for Mother's Day. Right. All those kinds of things. And, you know, honestly, what you're getting paid for a lot of those assignments, Mm -hmm. too, was pretty grim. Absolutely. You know, so much more of my professional work, at least, is now within more copywriting and marketing Mm -hmm. stuff and, you know, all that kind of thing, which is, I think, where a lot of people go to, you know, actually (laughs) get compensated for for your work, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm still, uh, I mean, I'm definitely still the person who is so up on the new restaurants and Mm -hmm. wants to go to all the new places and like insists on, you know, planning for my friend's dinner, Uh you know, where we're going to go and all that kind of thing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm always people, I get a lot of emails, you know, like, where should I go? I'm coming to New Mm -hmm. York or, you know, those kinds of questions. And I'm always happy and enthusiastic and thrilled to like share that information. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times I'll realize that I'm like behind. Yeah, you know, I don't even know. I'll go look on Eater or New York Magazine or something mm-hmm. and try to find out, like, oh, where should we go tonight? And I'll realize there's all these openings. I'm like, man, yeah. I haven't even heard of half these places. I know. Same here. I feel like because I'm not forced to stay up on it exactly. now. I mean, and it's interesting because I'm in sort of a transitional moment where I'm doing, you know, I, I'm freelancing again and I'm uh, working as a nutritionist and I'm kind of doing both of these things and mm-hmm. starting to write more about food and have gotten a couple opportunities to cover restaurant openings lately. So I'm like, maybe I am kind of getting back into that scene, which yeah. I have a really hard time with because it is, I mean, I like talking to the people about the restaurants mm-hmm. and hearing the stories behind openings or mm-hmm. the psychology of opening a new restaurant, you know. But it's hard to find a place that's interested in those stories. Though. Yeah, definitely. Or, yeah. you know, those are like maybe once in a while, kind of a longer profile. Mm-hmm. But that's not what like a blog wants every exactly. day. That's not, exactly. you know, that's not the kind of like everyday food writing, yeah. which is also not that appealing to me either. Like doing blogs or daily food coverage just yeah. feels very... Um, very churny like it's, yeah it's just gonna go away instantly, yeah and you're just you know? searching you're like desperate for that story yeah and, you know and realizing you know three other blogs have written the same story right exactly you know? and there are so many fascinating stories and individuals and personalities mm-hmm. and histories within the food world and I still feel like yeah the opportunity to cover some of those stories is is there for me right um but you know I also write about music and I do a lot mm-hmm. of travel and tourism stuff and nice you know I work for all different kinds of things and get to write mm-hmm. about all different kinds of subjects and I think that for me professional that's kind of more satisfying yeah and I felt that way about when I was in the music industry for a bit as well I worked as a Mm -hmm. publicist for um, some record labels when I first moved to New York and there was a point where you know you go to a show and you have to sit through four bands at the knitting factory on a Tuesday night (laughs) and you're like this is so horrendous you know you realize that it's sort of more fun to just be the fan Mm -hmm. you know or just get to visit that world a little bit as opposed to being Mm -hmm. completely obligated to follow every single detail a lot of which you don't really care about Right. Well, sorry, chewing. Um, (laughs) I feel like generalism in journalism has really fallen 
by the wayside. Like mm, that's not yeah. the trend anymore. I but think that's true. You know, but I feel like it used to be, and that's maybe what draws a lot of people to journalism or used <clears> to <throat> to begin with. I think that's what drew me to it is that like I'm interested in a lot of different things and I like to find good stories and convey them, but mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily interested in you know, geeking out or Mm -hmm. delving so deep into the minutia of everything I cover. I mean, some things, yes, and some things for a little while, like Mm -hmm. I'll totally, you know, get obsessed with some facet of nutrition or some facet of culinary history for a bit and do a big research project and, you know, write a big piece or something. But to constantly be, you know, expected to delve into minutia like that just feels like such a burden you know absolutely takes the joy out of it yeah i mean just being a fan Mm -hmm. you know being an eater just being a human in new york who gets to experience all of the amazing foods that are here i i find myself so enthusiastic and so passionate Mm -hmm. and connected to it but you know, the fact is, is I'm not really on the list to get invited to all of the fancy right. food parties, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm o- I'm okay with that yeah. <laughs> at this stage. You know, there was a point when I was like, how come I haven't been invited to that? Right. But, you know, I think that's more social media than anything else. Yeah, and looking know? at everybody's supposedly wonderful exactly. life and being like, why don't I have that? Exactly. But of I was, course. you know, I was briefly sort of on the other side of it. I always feel like an outsider no matter what. So it, yeah, it's hard doesn't? to really feel like I was on the inside. But, you know, I did work at Gourmet Magazine yeah, yeah. and I like got invited through that to a lot of openings and stuff. Absolutely. But those parties always felt so empty to me yeah well it's a you know like any situation it's very clicky yeah i mean and it's not specific to the food world by any means it's how any Any professional world world is Mm -hmm. and you know if you know the right people and you kind of make friends with a few of the right people Mm -hmm. you get invited to the right things and you know then it just kind of goes from there and that's a beautiful thing but you know some people work really hard at that Mm -hmm. and for me that kind of schmoozing has to feel very natural yeah and i feel that you know during the years when i was most significantly working in the food world you know I I made a lot of wonderful friends Mm -hmm. from that and you know those friends are my friends and it doesn't really have anything to do with what they do or what access they can get me it's just I met the people I like and they've remained my friends and they occasionally invite me to things or you know I go to a restaurant and somebody who I'm friends with I don't know sends an appetizer or gives me a table and that's a beautiful thing but I'm not asking for anything more you know (laughs) yeah you know no that's how it has to be I think like it has to feel organic and it has to be genuine and friendships yeah otherwise it's just I don't know to me that feels gross yeah I never really connected with sort of the chef scene yeah I mean I know a few people who cook professionally Mm -hmm. but that is definitely a lifestyle yeah and that is not my lifestyle I mean I'm not much of a drinker Mm -hmm. and I like to stay up late but I'm definitely you know for for a while not that late yeah not that late (laughs) for a couple years ago I was dating a guy who was a bartender in Mm -hmm. in high-end restaurants and it was hard, you know, yeah. he'd come home at two or three in the morning wow. and he'd want to hang out, like watch a movie, have some drinks, make some right. food. And I'm like, I've been asleep Oof. for three hours. Like I can't, right. you know, I'm exhausted. This totally. is rough. You know, and then he was working five days a week and we'd only get to hang out maybe one night a week. Right. And so. he probably had different different days of the week that he was working yeah, than he did exactly. or whatever. His days exactly. off were different. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, a hard, it's a whole different social world. It is, for sure. for sure. Yeah, some people thrive on that, but I think it's it's definitely not for me. Yeah, I mean, I always sort of wanted the hot chef boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I always thought that sounded really appealing. 
<laughs> but you know, never met the right one, I guess. And you said that <laughs> you kind of have a hard time dating people who aren't as into food or or have weird food issues. So. I have, you know, I have yet to meet the guy whose food thing yeah. matches mine, what, whatever it is. I know what you mean. I mean, I don't want to disparage anyone that I've dated, <laughs> but you know, it's yeah, it's been hard, definitely seeing yeah. some of the ways that someone else approaches food. What are they like? What is I mean, worked for you in general terms. Just somebody who I've had some interesting situations, you know, guys who really don't feel comfortable in restaurants Mm. and not even in fancy restaurants. I mean, I'm not talking about per se, but just, you know, sort of a nice New York place. Mm -hmm. I mean, the sense of casual versus fancy in New York has become quite blurred blurred and weird in the last several years. But yeah, you know, just, um, I think a lot of people, and it's. I think it's hard to remember because we live in a sort of very urban New York experience mm-hmm. where many of our friends, you know, mine and, and yours, I'm sure, are very knowledgeable about yeah, going out to dinner. Sure. So, you know, when you date somebody who's like, what's this and what's yeah. that? And it sort of goes into a restaurant with the expectation of being intimidated mm-hmm. and of somehow not being welcomed. Oh, yeah. And um, this guy has was, a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. Kinda. Like this guy I was dating was saying, oh, I went into this restaurant and they were just giving me a hard time. And I was like, really? Hmm. Why? Like, why would they do that? You uh-huh. know, I just it, that doesn't make sense that a restaurant would somehow think that your money's not good enough yeah. or that you're not a part of it. I don't really understand. It's, yeah, it's supposed to be about hospitality. Yeah, exactly. we were exactly. trying to do but, I, but I've, and... I've come across that a lot. Like, mm-hmm. you know, guys who sort of feel that, I don't know, if it's if it's a class thing or if it's just uh-huh. an experience thing or, or where that's coming from, but... Yeah, you know that's interesting. Well, there is a certain class thing about restaurants, right? It's like you... Ha- like the... I guess feeling comfortable in restaurants probably requires that you've eaten in a lot of restaurants or that you maybe even grew up with an idea of restaurants that was like, I'm welcome here and not like that's a place for rich people or something. Yeah, yeah. So maybe there's something of that. Indeed. And there's that thing that people say about, you know, even if someone treats you well and they treat the waitress poorly, uh-huh. that's like a sign of yes. you know, they're not a good human kind of a thing. <laughs> exactly. And I've never experienced exactly that, but I often yeah. find myself sort of sympathizing with the servers mm. more than with the people that I'm at the table with. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's like asking a bunch of dumb questions, actually something right. that really drives me crazy, not even with boyfriends, but with friends who yeah. you're out with, they'll ask the waitress like, what do you like? Oh, what do yeah. you think is the best thing on the right. menu? And it's like, you know, just make your own decision. Like yeah. be a human and maybe if have you're an deciding opinion. between two things or yeah, something, you can but, like, ask I just, them, I've never like, really understood that. It's like, cause yeah. the waitress is essentially a salesperson. Exactly. And also who's to say that her taste is going to be aligned with yours right exactly I just don't I just never she's understand that yeah she's not a food critic and she, she doesn't know what you like yeah. or what you're in the mood for right. or I just I don't know why that that sort of irks me no, but I it always has mean. it's putting a lot of responsibility on <clears throat> the other person on the on the server and not like taking responsibility as an eater yeah I'm also I'm a good decision maker like I'm mm. definitely somebody who's like this is what I want yeah you know so uh, you know when I see people who are super wishy-washy I'm like oh let's just make a decision right <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's my own issue well I mean it's interesting because it sounds like you had a pretty good um upbringing around food like food wasn't really a source of strife for you yeah not and too so bad. you know maybe you're you're able to make decisions more easily because of that. I mean, I do have internal decisions, mm-hmm. you know, where I'm like, oh, I really should get the salad or, right. you know, the fish. And then I'm like, oh, I'll get the hamburger. Uh, that's what I want. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then sometimes I beat myself up about it mm. afterwards. I did that the other night where I got the fish and chips. Uh-huh. 
And afterwards, even though I said beforehand, every time I get fish and chips, I regret it. It's so <laughs> greasy and so intense. Right. And, you know, I ordered it. And afterwards, I was like, yeah, I yep, really should have had a salad. Yeah. <laughs> I did indeed regret the fish and chips. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's such a hard line to walk, I think, because if you deprive yourself too much, then you're going to feel that deprivation. and It'll probably come out in other ways. But... You know, it is it is tricky when you know, like, every time I eat this, I kind of feel gross, but I want it. You know, yeah. What do you do with that? Like, Indeed. I mean, I, I heard you say on the podcast mm-hmm. of yours that I was listening to earlier that you now are at a point where you crave fruits and vegetables yes. and crave healthy food. Yeah. And I feel that I'm at that point in my life as well, mm-hmm. you know, where I know that eating, you know, a super, I don't know, buttery piece of toast in the morning isn't going to, is going right. to be delicious, but it's not going to make me feel as good mm-hmm. as if I eat, you know, yogurt and fruit. Yeah, you exactly. Know, and I I just sort of know that and I do crave vegetables very much Mm -hmm. you know if I'm like I was just traveling in Costa Rica Mm, and you know it was a lot of like french fries and rice and beans and there was not many vegetables going on Mm. you know when I came home and I was like oh I really need a salad yeah I really want that yeah totally give me some kale I'm back in Brooklyn yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly it is time for kale Yeah, that's so interesting. I've been working a little bit with eating disorders recently Mm. and thinking a lot more about that sort of thing because I think in nutrition in general, there's this concept of like more fruits and vegetables is always better and more sort of healthy choices. You know, the more we can push people towards that, the better because the default mode, I think, in most of the U.S. is very like not that you know is yeah. is very mean potatoes <clears throat> or meat and french fries as it were yeah. and um so you know that's sort of the like the optimal way to address the health of the population maybe is to push for more quote-unquote healthy foods mm-hmm. but then for this you know subset of the population who has kind of a disordered relationship to food or is prone to like self-flagellation about their choices yeah. that messaging can be very harmful yeah I can totally and understand so, that. You know, I've been thinking a lot more lately about like what role do sort of like cravings play and, you know, giving into those cravings, how can that actually be beneficial in some cases and where do you draw the line, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it sort of makes me think of a time when my mother was ill, mm. when she was she had lung cancer, and, oh, you know, wow. it was very difficult for her to eat. Mm-hmm. And my sister and I were pushing her, kind of riding on her about eat healthy yeah go eat some salads or you know at least some steamed vegetables or Mm -hmm. you know some proteins like but she was exhausted and didn't really want to fix food for herself Mm -hmm. you know during the times when my sister and I couldn't be with her and you know her doctor eventually said like eat whatever you want yeah you know because you just need good food and granted that's an extreme example Mm -hmm. you know but it's you know it's true that sometimes just you know you need you need to eat for your own well-being and sometimes like the kind of nanny state Mm -hmm. existence that we live in a lot of everyone telling you what's healthy and what's not healthy can be more problematic and just kind of throw a wrench into it absolutely you know I was talking to someone recently who has some disordered eating and she was saying like she had spoken to another dietitian who said you know all this hand-wringing you're doing about whether you know, you should get this one thing that might have certain chemicals or this other thing that might have other, you know, negative consequences and, oh, how much fiber and this and that. Like, all of that is going to cause you much more, you know, like health, more health problems than if you were to just choose whatever you wanted. Exactly, because that stress is going to wear at you. Yeah, and I I totally agree with. I mean, I find myself 
very sympathetic to people with, you know, yeah. any number of different kinds of eating issues that are going on, you know, mm-hmm. from an anorexia thing to, you know, gluten-free, oh, you, know, yeah. you know, physical issues and incompatibility right. issues, you know, and all these different reasons that affect the kinds of choices that people make in their food. Yeah. But we really have sort of gotten to this point where the announcement of everybody's mm-hmm. eating issues are so at the forefront <sighs> yes. of every conversation. I mean, there was just like yes. a great New Yorker cartoon about that last yeah. week that you probably saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> definitely me. about. You know, and I, I had a friend who was just visiting from L.A. Mm-hmm. And after she left, I was joking, like, why do people from L.A. spend so much time talking about their gastrointestinal problems? Uh, <laughs> like, really, truly, you know? It was oh like this God. just ongoing conversation, wow. you know? And it's it's sort of funny yeah, how we've come to this point where I think the kinds of conversations that maybe once were considered quite rude mm-hmm. are now very much on the table, right? <laughs> sort of Absolutely. Yeah, you know. that's so interesting. I mean, um, I know a lot about many strangers, you know, mm-hmm. gastrointestinal deals because right. they're like, "Oh, well, I'm gluten free," and la la la. You're like, Here's "Okay, what TMI." Yes, you know, <laughs> absolutely. No, I know what you mean, and especially when you're a person who works in food or has something to do with food, people feel comfortable talking to you about that stuff. So yeah. it's like, yeah, you sort of open the floodgates, yeah. as it were. I mean, I I think that I sort of back to the dating thing. I think I mm-hmm. would have a hard time dating somebody who, yeah. you know, who had a significantly complicated mm-hmm. relationship to food in yeah. that way. You know, I have dated a few of those guys, and I think you know, I've mostly dated people that I've met in real life, but I've also done some online dating, mm-hmm. and I think for me to say I'm a nutritionist or I'm a food journalist in online dating kind of really does attract a lot of that. Mm, So, mm -hmm. you know, I went on some dates with a guy who was like gluten-free and had this very weird idea about how to eat. Like he didn't eat until 2 p.m. and he only drank like coffee with like half and half or whole or heavy cream. Oh, that's kind of antithetical to a lot of other nutritional stuff I've heard. Yeah, very strange. Very, and, you know, it was supported by some study that was done in like 30 obese men in Israel. And that's, <laughs> that was the reason. <laughs> Scientific. I was like, okay. Like once he showed me that study, I was like, oh boy. Okay, yeah. this, here we go. Like, well, I've heard it said, and I mean, this is, you know, this, this might sound a bit weird, but that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that a lot of people that are, women especially of a certain age, that are, you know, going gluten-free or vegan, mm-hmm. that a lot of it is kind of a, of a, I mean, this sounds so terrible, but sort of a cover yeah. for various other Absolutely. eating disorders, you know, so Absolutely. like where, you know, it's not culturally accepted to be anorexic right. or bulimic, but now to be yes. vegan or gluten-free. And I mean, I, I truly it's, don't mean to criticize anybody with those issues, which I know right. are so complicated and so deep. And that's, Definitely. you know, I... I want to be sensitive to that, but I can definitely see how a lot of yeah. people could use that, you know, as as a socially acceptable way to kind of yep. play out some of the weird issues that people have with food. Completely. And I've, I just talked about this on the podcast recently, actually, mm. that I, um, I was gluten-free for a little while, and I think it was largely because I was coming out of anorexia, and mm. I was still having some disordered issues around food and didn't want to admit that the gastrointestinal stuff that I was having was due to not eating enough food and mm. so instead it was it was convenient or it was you know it was put in my head by you know well-meaning people that like oh it might be gluten intolerance right. and that was sort of becoming a buzzword this was like 2005 mm-hmm. maybe so yeah that was sort of before so it was, I'd say it was before it really hit the yeah. the big time but I think I was unfortunately 
partly responsible for the uh, the rise in it because I wrote three <laughs> articles about <laughs> oh my gosh it's all your fault it's responsible some small <coughs> way I uh, I contributed to that but and uh, yeah I know. mean I definitely don't mean to be insensitive in any way to the complications yeah. of that of those kinds of issues because I know for it's sure. it, there's so much going on there for people but it is, you know, now it's mm-hmm. totally acceptable to say that you're gluten-free or that yeah. you're vegan or that, you know, you show up somewhere and you can't eat this or to quiz the waiter about the right. 8,000 things that are in the dish. And that's just sort of par for the course now. Totally. You know? Yeah, not not being flexible and rolling with things, you yeah. know, as much as yeah. um, polite society required. I mean, yeah. going back to politeness, you yeah. know, I think. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like I'm relatively willing to eat whatever's put in front of me. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, again, talking about people's behaviors in restaurants is I'm mm-hmm. sort of horrified when I'm with somebody who's quizzing the waiter right. on every single ingredient like well can I do this or can I do that and I'm like just eat it yeah. just take it like are you really that picky that you totally. can't eat the you know the whatever I, I don't know <laughs> no I totally agree like, I'm, I'm like terrified that I'm coming off as some incredibly insensitive no, person no I, I don't think you are okay, at all good, because you. I mean I know like you know from the research on eating disorders and uh, you know just general disordered eating and nutritional issues that it is very common for people to have, you know, gluten, like self-diagnosed gluten intolerance or vegetarianism, yeah. veganism, you know, while there's a lot of self-diagnosis going on self-diagnosis, in our world. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, I know Western medicine is not the greatest with that stuff either. So I totally, I can sympathize to some extent with people yeah. who end up self-diagnosing or just, you know, oh, deciding they feel better with something. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, that like, how do you scientifically decide that you feel better without a certain thing you know it's it's not it's not cut and dried it can be there you know there's a lot of there's placebo. so many other factors exactly yeah. placebo effect is big like yeah. other factors like you may not even realize that you've been doing something else concurrently with eating gluten and then you've cut right. out those behaviors together right. or who knows right. like there's just so many yeah you know so and and people have such strong beliefs too which i think is another component like if you truly believe that animal products are harmful or that you you know you're you feel better without them i mean there is you know there are a lot of environmental reasons to go vegan to go vegetarian Absolutely. so if if that is a big factor in how mm-hmm. you feel about your food and helps you to feel better about it then mm-hmm. You know, I get it. I understand that. Absolutely. It's, I mean, I could be a vegetarian thing. easily. Like, yeah. I don't necessarily want to, right. but I could. You know, I mean, if if you were to take meat out of my diet, mm-hmm. I, I'd be perfectly happy with all the different the different kinds of things. I mean, yeah. in, in college, I remember I went to school in California. Oh, me too. And actually. everybody was a vegetarian. Yeah. And I used to joke that you know, if there was a potluck, mm-hmm. if you brought something with meat in it, you'd be like vilified. Oh yeah. You just wouldn't do it. Right. Nobody would do it. And it wasn't until right. I graduated from college and moved to San Francisco mm-hmm. when it was like, oh, I'll eat some meat. And that became more of a regular thing. But right. not even that regular. I mean, I think it was not until I moved to New York in my 30s mm-hmm. when, you know, going out and ordering a steak became sort of a, a regular thing to An do. An acceptable yeah, thing. acceptable yeah. thing to do. Definitely. Yeah. I definitely had some vegetarian periods in college as well and, you know, flirted with it throughout my 20s and uh now I'm mostly vegetarian, but I just, you know, going back to the whole, like, again, kind of flexibility or being yeah. able to accept what's what's given to you, what's cooked for you. Yeah. I think, you know, I just can't, I can't cut things out completely. Yeah. I think also having had an eating disorder and sort of come out of it 
you know, little by little, I really didn't, I I didn't have any working in the food world. I think I had to be, it was Mm -hmm. like a prolonged exposure therapy. Yeah. So I had to, I had to like get over some of those issues and, and put aside some disordered behaviors. Yeah. Well, you realize how much of those food decisions are mm -hmm. psychological. Yeah. It's, it's quite intense. Definitely. And how, you know, how much do you, I mean, for me, it never it never took hold as as much as it unfortunately does for some mm-hmm. other people. I think partly because <coughs> my family was generally pretty okay with food. You know, I think people who grew up in families where food is a real battleground can mm-hmm. have a harder time coming out of eating disorders. Um, but yeah, for me, I think because I've gone through that and because I've seen how important it was to open up, start being flexible and accepting different kinds of food, like mm-hmm. I just can't put any restrictions on myself even if it's for a greater cause even if it's for environmental reasons like I have to be moderate about that stuff yeah you know I mean I have friends who are butchers and you know who are working in those fields and you know as uncomfortable as it is sometimes to think about some of those processes I feel like Mm -hmm. those people that I know that are doing that kind of work are doing it with the best of intentions right you know and are really working to create a um you know a a positive approach to meat eating or Mm -hmm. dairy raising or whatever it is that they're doing. And I want to support that too. I think that's another part of why I don't ever, you know, I I can't completely give it up is because I think that sustainable farming and, you know, meat raising industry is so important. So yeah, I got to go to a really wonderful uh, food event last Mm. year, this thing called Eat Retreat. Oh, yeah, which was so fantastic. And there were a couple people there, we actually had like three fully professional butchers that were part of this group of only about 35 people. And one of the demonstrations that we did was one of the butcher guys, well, actually, all of them together, basically broke down a pig. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'd seen like a whole pig on a spit before, but I never really watched somebody break down an animal in that way yeah and pull out its organs one by one Mm. and it was incredibly moving yeah it was it was very beautiful watching them approach the animal in that way and Mm -hmm. the respect and the ways that they explain the anatomy and the science of it I mean it was it was fascinating yeah and it really gave me quite an extra bit of respect for that, you know, even if I myself can be a little squeamish, mm-hmm. you know, about seeing, you know, looking yeah, into that pig's too. eye. I mean, it's kind yeah. of gnarly. Um, but there was something really beautiful and mm-hmm. that pork was delicious, you yeah. know, and it knowing it, especially where it came from. Right. And having watched somebody who I had lunch with that day break it down mm-hmm. and serve it to us for dinner, it's it's quite extraordinary. Totally. You know, not, I don't think not enough of us get the experience of what that is. Yeah. And so many people shy away from it. I think, you know, because of squeamishness or mm-hmm. whatever, like people, people who can't, don't even want the whole fish, yeah, the head and the tail on the plate. Know kind of what yeah. it looks like or where, you know, think about yeah. that it's connected to an animal exactly that's like uh, that's unfortunate I think you yeah know, I think it's I think not that I would ever impose something like this but I feel like you know if you're gonna be a meat eater you should you know at least think through some of those issues and try to f- come face to face with yeah what it means to eat an animal absolutely. a little bit you know absolutely and, and come to your own kind of peace with it or uneasy peace I mean I definitely feel like a conflicted yeah. omnivore still and, you know but <laughs> I the title of your autobiography the <laughs> yes. conflicted omnivore I think I actually stole that from an online dating site or something. <laughs> no, like I like an that option that says conflicted that's omnivore that's the new Michael uh, Pollan book yeah exactly exactly <laughs> well it, you know yeah omnivore is a dilemma you know it's like we definitely I, I feel that conflict yeah for sure on a yeah. daily 
day-to-day basis. But I had a similar experience a few years ago where I went to um, Mexico and went to a small family farm and, you know, watched them uh, take a, what was it, a goat, take a goat and uh, slaughter it in front of us, you know, just, just cutting the neck. And he was like Whoa. lying in it, like hogtied and lying in a little barrel or a, um, a wheelbarrow. And like, you know, watched this animal die and then they broke it down and skinned it and, you know, the whole thing and cooked the entire animal. And I f- completely cried when, it, when he was, you know, when they were slaughtering him, which I had been to another goat slaughter like a few years before that for gourmet and I wasn't I sort of was much more stoic but mm-hmm. this time for some reason it really moved me I think it was did the how did the people react in that situation did they sort of look I, at you like you were they, crazy or were they sympathetic I was with a group so I think it was and that same group it was a food studies group mm-hmm. from NYU mm-hmm. and that group had been going there for you know uh, years yeah. and years so I think it was maybe par for the course right, <laughs> at least right. one person would be like <laughs> at least you didn't pass out no exactly it's, yeah I wasn't that's squeamish for some reason. Yeah, I mean, Usually I don't think I'd am, want to go to, like, a slaughterhouse or, you know, oh, yeah. go check out, you know, even when you go into certain butcher shops like Dixon's yeah. in Chelsea Market, you know, I mean, they're sitting there breaking down the carcasses and there's whole half, you know, mm-hmm. sides of cows basically hanging from meat hooks in the yeah. ceiling and back there. And it's kind of intense. It's, it's definitely intense, kind of yeah. I've used the word intense quite a lot. <laughs> it is, it is no, intense. That is, I mean, yeah, that's the word for it, I think. It's yeah. very, really, you know stares you in the face yeah like, I've only grown comfortable cooking meat really in the last several years I'd mm. say it wasn't something that in my younger years that I did very much of I mean I yeah. think it was financial as well as just sort of comfort level yeah meat's you very know. expensive yeah but now I'm and you know now it's even more expensive because mm-hmm. you want to buy the good stuff right totally you know, I'm not really willing to go buy a bunch of yeah. crappy styrofoam packaged yeah me you know neither. crap from the grocery store it's just I'm not gonna do it really yeah I mean if you have to but yeah you really ever have to that's when you become a vegetarian. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, it's like yeah. there are so many other ways yeah. than that. Yeah. And I, but I also sympathize with you know people who are struggling to afford food and, exactly. and meat is such a good source of protein. That's such an yeah. easy way to like fill up and feed a family. So yeah. I, I do understand why that industry still exists. Yeah. To give us cheap meat, but yeah. I mean, I don't think that industry is fightable, really. It's Mm-mm. so gigantic. I mean, and not to be, yeah. you know, a coward in the face of industrial agriculture, but I, I mean, it's, it, it seems too too mm-hmm. huge. I don't even know how, you know, small farms are doing what they're doing and yeah. hopefully can just continue to thrive, but and I don't yeah, think it's you, really any threat to the industrial side of it. Right. You know? I know. I mean, you fight with your dollar, I guess, and, yeah. f- you know, fight. But that's Lobbying. hard. I mean, I paid 50 bucks for a leg of wow. lamb the other day. Wow. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was crazy how it expensive is. that thing was. It was delicious, even mm-hmm. if I overcooked it a little. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's not for the faint of hearts right. or um, light of wallet. No, I know what you mean. I mean, that's why I don't eat meat as much or, you know, more. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, I guess, but it's not really for health reasons. I just, yeah. you know, I eat meat a couple yeah. times a week, largely because of the finances. But also, you know, like buying a thing of kale or whatever can be mm-hmm. crazy expensive. Oh, I mean, yeah. God, the other day I was like buying some cucumbers and they were so insanely expensive. Huh. Yeah. Couldn't even take it. Yeah. And yesterday I was buying some asparagus and the organic stuff was, mm-hmm. I think it was nine ninety nine a pound. Whoa. For organic asparagus. And the other uh, stuff was three ninety nine a pound. I was like, okay, I'll yeah. go for the non-organic yeah. because it's like, that's what crazy. What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, $15 on an asparagus side dish like that's yeah. insane well I've been doing a lot more of that lately too I used to be so 
I think it was also in the moment, you know, in the time of my eating disorder, I was so like controlled about everything. About organic and, and certified to Always stuff. buy organic yeah. and certified. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, grass fed and free range and this and that. And so, which is all stuff that I fully support. But I also think like you have to have some flexibility about it to understand like if I, if I shop this way all the time, I will break the bank. Yeah. And I had no extra money lying around then because I was spending it all on food yeah. you know I mean I spend so much money on food like yeah. I, was, I think I was saying that I don't even go I mean I, I like to go buy a new pair of shoes or you know some makeup yeah. or something but you know if I'm if I'm going out and spending money it's on food yeah me it's too, on largely. restaurants and it's on groceries and actually yeah. my own like food waste issues mm. I think are a huge issue for me lately like really? the amount of food that I buy even expensive organic asparagus mm-hmm. you know or whatever else I'm buying that I end up not eating and throwing away, yeah. vegetables especially. Do you just get busy and don't have time to cook them? or what's Yeah, or I just get distracted or I get lazy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll sit there and look at the refrigerator and there's like, you know, that nice little thing of French cut green beans. Yeah. And, you know, I'm like, oh, I'll just eat this leftover potato thing. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> <laughs> or I'll just have the leftover Chinese. Right. I don't want to have some cheese to. and crackers and call it a day. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. I'm I get not. in that same mindset too sometimes. I've, you know, I don't love this, but... I have started buying pre-cut vegetables more recently, at least vegetables that I that I don't like to cut myself or that are just time consuming, like mushrooms or uh, carrots. Some carrot sticks recently. Yeah, 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 I buy a lot of baby carrots. You know, I used to wonder a lot about the idea of like homemade and how Mm -hmm. you know that becomes that such a point for yeah food people lately and you know, going to a dinner and somebody uses a store-bought pie crust, it's like, oh, oh God, how oh, dare they? Heaven forbid. You know, so yeah, is, is yeah. pre-cut vegetables cheating? Is a pie crust cheating? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what if you make everything homemade, but you use the Hellman's mayonnaise as opposed to making right. your own homemade mayonnaise? You know, how many levels of homemade yeah. are we supposed to get for it still to be considered, totally. you know, completely homemade versus store-bought? And doesn't matter. And do we care? I know. That's such you a know? good point i mean and there are some people who are such purists who would you know freak out if they found out you'd used hellman's mayonnaise hopefully not that many people no because hellman's (laughs) is awesome (laughs) yeah exactly and i think now you know there is a um an increasing kind of like acceptance of that because of people like david chang and you Mm -hmm. know like where it's like there are good store-bought things and there are things that you know you can like kind of doctor and use yeah. your, you know well that's kind of like the swap game. event that I do yeah the BK swappers thing right. is very much about people making homemade mm-hmm. a lot of things that normally you would buy store-bought oh yeah so I end up my refrigerator is filled with all this crazy stuff like uh-huh. last night for my Seder I used a horseradish a prepared horseradish oh, wow. that I'd received at the swap from someone that I traded them mm-hmm. I don't remember what I traded them for but it was I have to say like quite fantastic to get to use someone's handmade grated yeah. pickled horseradish as opposed to cracking open the jar of the whatever the brand is yeah you know. where it's kind of like yeah been sitting for a while yeah it's yeah in like citric acid instead of exactly you know, exactly um that's interesting so let's talk a little bit about the swappers actually because i'm so interested in the psychology of it i went to an event mm-hmm. and it was my first one so my friend kind of initiated me into how it works that was a good was, one you came to an outdoor yeah, one that we did in greenpoint a couple years it ago it was really fun yeah and and it was so <clears> i didn't actually i don't think i brought anything or no, I did bring something, but I didn't have time to like do anything fancy. So I think I brought cookies or I forget what exactly it was. But, but you made the trade, right? I made the trade, yeah. yeah. But I didn't have anything of enough high value, I realized <laughs> later, to get the stuff that I really wanted. So I had to sort of bargain and barter. And there was all this kind of yeah. 
this interesting kind of, you know, value placed on mm-hmm. food based on like how much work went into it or how delicious exactly. is it, how much am I going to use it? Like exactly. a lot of. Well, I think what I've realized with the swap is that value is so relative. Yeah. And that, you know, what's valuable to one person is absolutely not to another, yeah. you know, and in totally. the same way that, you know, like we talk about personal cravings or things that you, that you really seek out, you mm-hmm. know, when I go to the swaps. I don't necessarily ever want to swap for sweet stuff Mm. because I know I'm just going to go home and eat it. Yeah. And not that that's a terrible, terrible thing, but in general for for the trades that I'm making, I want to go get pantry items. Yeah. You know, things like horseradish or hot sauce or pickles or apple butter Mm -hmm. or things that I can sort of have on my shelf and keep for a while and I can keep returning to as opposed to like, you know, a a piece, you know, a a mini cake or little pies or something. Although I Because that's just gone. Because that's just gone and I'll just eat it. You know, it's just like, okay, now I'm going home and I'm eating this entire package of cookies because they're yeah. delicious, you yeah, know, and so I live alone. Yeah. Um, last time I um, ended up trading, for the, we had a lot of sweet stuff at the last swap we mm. had in, uh, when was that? In early March? I can't even remember. Late February? Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up with cakes and these little pies. So this woman had made these fantastic little mini mm. pies. One was like a key lime and another was a oh, grapefruit nice. curd. And I came home and ate them both. And basically, I was like, great, now this swap's over. I just ate half a pie, you know, but they were amazingly good. So I was like thrilled about it. But, you know, I I do enjoy trading for the items that, you know, can sit on my pantry and Mm -hmm. can just sort of add something to my my meals, you know, all the time. And yeah, the sense of value... You know, I mean, I I always try to explain it where the idea of like a regular jar of jam is kind Mm -hmm. of the baseline. Right. So think of, you know, whatever you're trading, what's equal to a jar of jam. And for some people, maybe a dozen cookies. Mm Mm-hmm. Is that equal? And for some people, maybe like, you know, a quart-sized jar of apple cider mm. or maybe a tiny two-ounce two ounce jar of, you know, Thai chili paste. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that all of those things can be comparable because even though the sizes are physically different and maybe mm-hmm. even the monetary value is different, you know, but in terms of how much you're going to use it, how quickly you're going to go through it. Yeah. You know, there's I had a friend who came to the swap last time and he was like, oh, wow, my stuff I'm realizing is you know, actually of much higher value. Mm. You know, the ingredients that he used and the stuff that he put into it made each jar with a value of maybe like 18 or $20 or something. So he was a little like, oh God, what can I trade that's going to feel like a good trade? And I said, you know, you kind of can't worry about the money thing. You have to just kind of, you know, not put a monetary value on it and just put the value on of, you know, what do you hope to get in return? Like, Mm -hmm. what's going to be delicious to you and enjoyable to you over time? Or immediately, if it's something you want to eat right now. Yeah, what do you really want? And what do you want to have around? Exactly. And I've seen people, you know, I've rejected stuff. My Mm -hmm. stuff has been rejected, you know, and it's all sort of par for the course. And it does sort of feel a little bad Uh when somebody's like, oh, no, I don't really want that. But, you know, it's taste. And taste is so personal. Totally. You know, um, somebody had offered me Last time, I think, I think there were like some little liquors and cordials. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to make the trade because I'm just, I just don't really drink at home. It's just, yeah. you know, I would, I just don't really make cocktails at home. Yeah, me neither. So that kind of thing just didn't really have a value for me, even mm-hmm. though I appreciate that she made it so much and all of her stuff is normally fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was like, oh, I, I still feel bad. You know, it's yeah. like a month and a half later and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't trade with you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very good natured, you know, yeah, even yeah. though it's really when we get to the trades, it's very, very chaotic. Uh-huh. Um, 
But I always sort of like to say that everybody everybody leaves happy, usually, mm-hmm. I hope. I did, definitely. <laughs> okay, I'm yeah, so glad. One, one time, talking about the vegan thing, I remember I'd made a big thing of spiced nuts uh-huh. that actually had a lot of butter in them. Oh, yeah. And I had written on the cards, we have little swap cards, and I'd written on the card that there was butter in it, but the girl was vegan, and she mm-hmm. traded for me, and then it was only after when she realized that there was butter oh, in no. it. And I just felt terrible that yeah. she'd actually eaten some of the nuts that had butter in them, and uh-huh. she's vegan. I'm like, oh, man, oh. I just like ruined your whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so guilty. I totally polluted you with my spice nuts. So oh, that sounds really delicious. dirty. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, but the swap is is quite a hilarious hotbed. Yeah. I think of the psychology of it totally. all of of, of value and mm-hmm. of. Um, I mean, it's also just an incredible community event and the ways yeah. that people interact around food. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly lovely. Totally. You know, it makes me very, very happy to see the to see strangers mm-hmm. coming together that we can create this event every couple of months for strangers to come together yeah. and trust one another enough to share their homemade foods. Totally. And, you know, for people to make new friends and, mm-hmm. you know, go away laden with all this new stuff. And then every time I use those items, I get to think of these people. Mm -hmm. And there's something really beautiful about that, sort of like knowing the butcher that cuts your meat. Absolutely. You know, knowing the person who made the hot sauce that you're putting on your eggs in the morning. Mm -hmm. And there's something incredibly wonderful about that that makes me very proud to, you know, to help facilitate that and to be the person that can organize an event to bring people together around food. How did you first get the idea to do the event? I did not found it. I did not start it, so I can't take the credit. Mm -hmm. Um, It was started by these two really amazing women, a a lady named Kate Payne, Mm -hmm. um, who wrote this really great book called The Hip Girl's Guide to Homemaking. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, and another woman named Megan Pasca, who um, around Brooklyn was a really well-known beekeeper and urban Mm -hmm. farmer, and in her backyard in Greenpoint, she had bees, she had chickens, she had rabbits. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was quite fantastic. Wow. Um, Kate ended up moving back to Austin, Texas, which is where she was from. Mm Mm-hmm. And Megan ended up moving out to rural New Jersey to start a farm. Mm, wow. And so by the time both of those, I came, I had come to the first swap mm-hmm. um, and that Kate and Meg had put together. Um, and I was just very enthusiastic and thought it was wonderful. And Kate left and asked me if I would sort of take her place as a co-organizer. And then Megan mm-hmm. left. So then the whole thing was in my hands. And now um, I brought on a, a woman named Margaret Spring, who's really mm-hmm. wonderful, who's helping me organize it now, too. It's a lot of work, so, right? It is. Like it's... I mean, just putting on an event in general is, yeah. is tough. The hardest is finding places, uh-huh. finding locations. Because you have to have enough space for everybody who's going to show up, but not yeah. too much space. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, now we've got it down to a bit of a science. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we it's sort of all done through MailChimp and through Eventbrite and oh, all these yeah, sort of online resources, easy. which is great, you know. Mm-hmm. But every, I, it's sort of like when you throw a party, and I do throw a lot of dinner parties and events, you know, personal just get get together mm-hmm. for my friends you know you always have that thing where 10 minutes before the party starts or maybe even 10 minutes after the time of when uh-huh. it's supposed to start you're absolutely convinced that it's a total failure and nobody's oh, gonna come yes. oh yes every single time i'm like no one's gonna show up to the swap we're just <laughs> gonna be sitting here there's gonna be like four of us just uh-huh. sitting around with all this food with all this food and then inevitably like 40 people show up and yeah. it's chaos you know totally. <laughs> i do it every time nobody's gonna come to my party that's so interesting i mean that from a psychological perspective is so fascinating yeah. like you know what is that where does that come from I have that too like, yeah completely anytime I and actually it's gotten to the point where I don't really have parties anymore <laughs> I mean obviously my place is not big enough for a big party so I I wouldn't do that anyway but you could have a rager in here yeah oh my god <laughs> shoulder to shoulder just like 
Yeah, no. I used to have really big parties at big apartments I lived at, and nice. I think I just got myself super burned out. At yeah, like, it is exhausting. It's exhausting. But the, you know, the swap crowd's a good crowd. You know, it's, yeah, it's, they're it's truly a collection people. of the loveliest, nicest people. Yeah. And, you know, it it sort of blows my mind that I've come to this stage where basically every other month I'm throwing an event for strangers. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm doing this for my for my friends, even though many of these people mm-hmm. are my friends at this point. Uh, it it sort of blows my mind. Yeah. And we always, every time we have brand new people who come, you know, mm-hmm. people who've heard about it and managed to score a ticket. And it it's it's incredibly, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm buoyed by it every mm-hmm. time, you know, just the idea that, that through this thing that I became a part of and that I make the effort to maintain mm-hmm. and to keep happening and put the work into doing these every other month. That you know, it brings people together around around food, yeah, and creates relationships, and that's really what it's all about, you know. And it makes me, I don't know, it's very heartening. Yeah, totally. I love it. That's a wonderful experience to be a part of. So. Yeah, it really is. And there's a there's a negotiation, you know, in mm-hmm. there the way for people in the trading and stuff. But yeah, you know, everybody, you go home with something new and something delicious, and even if it's not that delicious, it's fine. <laughs> and you get to sample stuff too, yes. right? Because people will always sample out whatever they're giving. So yeah. you get to try lots of different things, even yeah. if you don't trade for them. Or, mm-hmm. you know, in my case, for the first time I went, I didn't really have enough to trade for some of the Nobody items Nobody ever I wanted, gets it the I, first time. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, it just you don't understand what It's how really it works, difficult but. to explain. Yeah. I, it's one of those kinds of events that you sort of have to experience for mm-hmm. it to really make sense. Totally. But it is it is very difficult to, to yeah, I'm, I'm struggling constantly to sort of mm-hmm. write something that explains it that uh-huh. people can refer to but you know you really just have to show up and yeah see how it goes definitely so everybody should come to the swap experience yes so where can people find out about it um probably on facebook is the best place bk mm-hmm. swappers on facebook BK um, swappers, yeah, yeah you can sign up for our mailing list there and like our page on facebook even though we all know now that facebook tells your people nothing right any <laughs> even if you like <laughs> us facebook still won't show you facebook our posts doesn't show you the posts yes. it's, so frustrating. <laughs> it's so frustrating so our well, mailing list yeah. is probably the best okay good yeah, yeah. You, or you can email us at bkswappers at gmail.com great well that's a good note to end on and uh it's been such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Christy. Thanks. Such a pleasure. So that was Jane Lerner. And thanks again to her for being on the podcast. Thanks to you guys for listening. And uh, tune in in about a month or so for the next episode. Uh, if you want to keep up with the podcast and know when the episodes are coming out, you can sign up on our website for our newsletter. So just go to foodpsychpod.com, type in your email in the newsletter sign-up box. Uh, you can also like our Facebook page, but Facebook isn't really uh, telling you much these days, I guess. When a, when a page updates itself. So um, do that, but you know, don't rely on that for your food psych news. Uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter. I do tweet about the latest episodes as well. So lots of ways to stay in the loop. And uh, yeah, that's about it. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL. And the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched.